Avi Loeb is a professor of science at Harvard University and a best-selling author, with works appearing in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and more. Loeb wrote eight books and over 800 papers on a wide range of topics, including black holes, the first stars, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the future of the universe. He had been the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy from 2011 to 2020, and founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. In 2012, Time Magazine selected Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. Avi Loeb, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. So I was just returning to something that Einstein once said, and it's the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It's the source of all true art and all science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. That's correct. I would add to that, uh, if we are not uh, open uh, to discover wonderful things, we will never discover them. It very much depends on us allowing ourselves to explore and find new things. Yes, and I see that throughout your work, through your most uh, recent book, Extraterrestrial, this openness, this wonder. And who and what first ignited your wonder about the cosmos, about the world, I guess about people just in general, this immense curiosity you have? And how do you maintain that curiosity and sense of wonder in the face of those who may have closed their eyes or minds to new discoveries and possibilities? Well, my mother used to tell me when I was a kid that when I was born as an infant, I was very different from the kids, the other babies in the room. I was looking around with open eyes and I should say that that's where it all started. Once I got out of the womb of my mother and I started looking around, I was very curious. And the great privilege of being a scientist is that you don't need to give up on that curiosity. You can maintain your childhood curiosity. And I take full advantage of that. What is special about kids, and by the way, I wrote my book, uh, Extraterrestrial, for the young people. What's special about young people, and kids in particular, is that uh, they're not afraid of asking questions. They're not worried about their image. They're often bumping into objects because they're not careful enough, and they discover the world. And they put skin in the game. They get bruised sometimes, and they make mistakes. You know, that's part of the learning experience. You know, we tend to think that uh, babies are not very smart, but that's not the case. Uh, when they play, we think it's for fun, but in fact, they are learning about the world. They are taking an object and turning it around, looking at it from all angles. It now turns out that it's very difficult to actually train a robot to behave like a baby uh, because a robot that is trained for a particular task if you change the circumstances a little bit, the robot will get confused, will not be able to cope with that. Whereas a child is much more flexible in thinking. And part of it is the play that the child uh, approaches the world with, trying to figure out what things are and allowing to look at things from different angles. And, you know, being a scientist is exactly like that. Uh, you are trying to look at evidence, at clues. And very often, the evidence is incomplete. You're not sure about how to understand it, how to interpret it. So it's work in progress. You're trying to figure it out. You put possibilities on the table. And I'm acting just like that. Now, of course, you would ask, why wouldn't everyone else behave like that? Because it's a bit risky. Because if you make a mistake, your image may be tainted. If you take risks, you might be wrong. 
So most uh, adults, once they mature and become adults out of uh, their childhood, they are careful. They don't want to get bruised. They don't want to make mistakes. They want to maintain an image that looks much better than they are. And um, this motivation of uh, maintaining an image uh, prevents taking risks, prevents uh, innovation. And that's why, you know, you don't find many people that do it. In fact, I find many more (laughs) that do it in the commercial sector, in um, companies like Google, Apple, SpaceX, um, Blue Origins. Uh, these are there are groups of people there that are taking much more risk than the people in academia that are worried about their image and so that's the fundamental difference you know i i was asked by the harvard the gazette the the official uh, newspaper of, of harvard university what is the one thing i would change about the world and i said i would like my colleagues to behave more like kids I think it's a beautiful mission, and I hope that it's one that we share. I mean, I'm an artist. I'm lucky to be often around students. And although they're not babies or still in their malleability, I just think that I feel liberated in not being too specialized. That is what you're talking about. That's what children have. And you say they're like natural philosophers. They don't see the difference between them and an animal. You know, they will start to learn like that. They will start to think they're like a plant. This lack of boundaries, I think, is where invention takes place. Yeah, exactly. And uh, when I was, I grew up on a farm when I was uh, young and uh, I used to collect eggs every afternoon and we had chicken. And uh, on weekends, I would go on a tractor to the hills of the village and read philosophy books. As you say, I mean, I... Kids wonder about the biggest questions. And the only reason they stop doing that is because adults tell them, stop thinking in that direction, or I don't have an answer for that, or this is not interesting. And and because of all these obstacles that adults put in their way, they themselves become adults and stop thinking about these fundamental questions. And, uh, you know, but I, as a kid, was very uh, excited about philosophy and I couldn't pursue it because I I was drafted to the military. I I was born in Israel and and, uh, I preferred uh, to study physics uh, as a substitute because that was allowed when I served in the military, a special program. And then I became an astrophysicist by circumstances. But I realized that even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love. Because in astrophysics, when we study the universe, we are addressing fundamental questions uh, that used to be part of philosophy using the scientific method. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, how did everything start? You know, what was there at the beginning of the universe uh, around the Big Bang or before the Big Bang? This is a very fundamental question. How did everything start? Another question that we address uh, scientifically now is, are we alone? Is there another kid on the cosmic block? And if there is, is that kid smarter than we are? You know, my daughter, I have two daughters, and when they were very young, they, they were at home, and they used to think that they are the smartest in the world and that the world centers on them because their world was the home. But uh, when we took them to the kindergarten, they saw other kids and they realized that they might not be the smartest. And that was a shock for them. And uh, if I would ask them, they would obviously tell me that they prefer to stay at home because this way they can maintain the illusion that they are the smartest in the center of the world. So we as a civilization, we didn't mature yet. You know, we didn't go out of our home and find others. And 
I, I really think it's a very important goal for the future for us to figure out whether there are neighbors uh, around other stars that may be smarter than we are. Just to prepare for the eventual future or maybe to, to learn from advances, I think that, yes, it's, you think even if we just think of how we behave even on our own planet as well to animals, there is an assumption that they don't have language or communication. And yet it's just that we don't really understand their languages. That's true. And yeah, and, and we might as well be viewed by others. If there are civilizations out there that are much more advanced than we are, they might look at us just like we look at ants. They might think we are nothing special. There are lots of ants on a sidewalk when you walk down the street and you don't pay special attention to any of them. So it's quite possible that in the hierarchy of all possible uh, animals in the universe, you know, we are not uh, near the top. We are somewhere in the middle, quite uh, typical. A lot of things like us existed, you know, because the sun is a relative latecomer. Most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And if they had civilization like, like ours around them, those civilizations were billions of years ahead of us. And uh, so we might not be first and we might not be even special. And I think the one thing I learned from astronomy, studying the sky over decades, is a sense of modesty. You know, we, we should not assume that it's all about us. You know, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, he argued that we are at the center of the world, that uh, there are spheres centered on us. And, and that was just like my daughters, you know, thinking that we are at the center. And for a thousand years, uh, people believed him because it flattered their ego. And then uh, Copernicus and Galileo realized, oh no, actually it looks like the earth moves around the sun. And the, the philosophers at the time of Galileo put him in house arrest. They said, we don't want to look through your telescope. We know that the sun moves around the earth. And the only problem is this maintained their ignorance. Reality doesn't care whether we ignore it or not. And the earth continued to move around the sun. So we are not at the center for sure. And, um, and then, you know, people thought, oh, maybe the sun and the earth are very special. But then it turns out now, as of uh, last year, we realized that about half of all the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the earth, roughly the same separation. So what we find in our backyard is not special. It's not privileged in any way. And so the, the moral of this story is you should never assume that we are privileged, that we are special. Uh, because we probably are not. Uh, whenever we assumed that in the past, we were wrong. Yes, it seems like it, in another sense, it can be likened to a kind of uh, colonial mentality that we might have had in the, the past where we felt like we go to a, a continent and it's been uninhabited. It, there must be no one there. We discovered it. But these questions are fascinating to think about how other civilizations might behave, whether they're solutions, collectivist solutions, technological solutions that we can only imagine. It, it's, it's very intriguing. Uh, I think the most important, I mean, there are several aspects to, to the search for others. Uh, one is, of course, to get a better sense of reality. You know, if, if you live in a neighborhood, you want to know who is living next to you. You know, that's a natural thing for us to find out. But uh, we can also learn from them. You know, if there are more sophisticated than we are, we can learn from more advanced technologies that will take us a long time to develop ourselves. We can ask them if we ever interact with them. We can ask them questions about uh, 
you know, puzzles that we don't fully understand. It might feel like cheating in an exam, but we have to keep in mind that there is no teacher looking over our shoulders and giving us a grade here. I mean, if they know the answers to some fundamental questions that will take us millions of years to answer ourselves, why not find out? You know, that would be a, a great thing. So I think, you know, it's really exciting, the opportunities that are out there. But then at the same time, you have most, you know, most uh, scientists or most people uh, uh, very often ridicule the discussion on on alien civilizations. And and that's unfortunate because, um, as I said at the beginning, you know, if we don't uh, search for wonderful things, we will never discover them. Another way to put it is uh, what... um, Oscar Wilde said, he said that we are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. There's Oscar Wilde is so full of these things that make you think in just a short space of time, or such a, a sentence. I want to tell us a little bit for those who don't know about Oumuamua. Right. So Oumuamua was uh, the first object from outside the solar system that was discovered near Earth. It was found in October 19th, 2017, about four years ago, by uh, a telescope in Hawaii on Mount Haleakala in Maui. And uh, because of that, it was given a a name that means uh, a scout in the Hawaiian language, Oumuamua. And um, at first, astronomers said, oh, it came from outside the solar system. It's probably a rock just like the rocks we have seen in the solar system before, except it came from another star. And uh, that was a surprise by itself that we found such a rock because uh, I calculated a decade earlier, I wrote the first paper estimating how many rocks you expect to have been ejected from other stars based on what we know about the solar system. And we didn't expect to find anything with that uh, telescope. So the actual detection of an object was a surprise, but then the object itself looked very weird because, first of all, it didn't have it didn't look like a comet. A comet is just a rock covered with ice. So it, when it gets close to the sun, it warms up and the ice evaporates, and you end up with a trail of of gas and dust surrounding it. But there was no cometary tail in this case, and there was no gas or dust found around it. And then, moreover, as the object um, was uh, tumbling, rotating, spinning. The amount of sunlight that was reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that implied that it has a very extreme shape, at least 10 times longer than it is wide when projected on the sky. And in fact, the variation of light reflected from it implied that most likely it's a pancake-shaped object. It's a flat object, disc-like, which is very unusual. And then... On top of that, the object showed an excess push away from the sun. And um, since it had no gas evaporating from it, the only explanation I could think of is that uh, it's because of reflection of sunlight. So when the sunlight uh, bounces off the surface of the object, it gives it a push. And in order for that to be effective, the object must be very thin, sort of like a sail, except being pushed by reflecting light instead of the wind. And uh, nature doesn't make sails that are pushed by light, light sails. And that's led me to suggest that it may be artificial in origin. And in fact, in September 2020, there was another object discovered by the same telescope. It was given the name 2020SO. You can check it on Wikipedia. And um, 
this object uh, was traced uh, to a rocket booster that was launched from Earth in 1966 as part of a lunar lander mission. And it had very thin walls, this rocket booster. And we know that it's artificial because we produced it. And the question is, who produced Oumuamua? I just want to say, first off, I found the book so like captivating. And I think it single-handedly convinced me that there's extraterrestrial life out there. But I wanted to say, based off the your answer to the previous question, in the book, you say that like trying to find Oumuamua was like, seeing a dinner guest recede into the night and not knowing who they are. So I was wondering, did you have to be creative in your approach to like find out more about it because you didn't get like a clear per se image of it? Right. So we couldn't resolve it. It's It was the size of a, a football field, roughly a, a hundred meters or so, but it was at a distance of a fraction of the distance of the sun from us. So we, with existing telescopes, we couldn't resolve it. And of course, so that left some ambiguity. And as I said before, whenever you do science, most of the time you're unsure, despite what the scientists try to portray. They often portray to the public as if they know what they are talking about. But most of the time in science, almost all the time, you just don't have enough evidence, enough clues. So what you need to do under these circumstances is what the detectives do, what Sherlock Holmes did. You put all possibilities on the table and then you try to collect more evidence. And by that rule out uh, all the possibilities except for one. And so what I did was put on the table the possibility that it's artificially made, perhaps a light sail or some very thin layer of material that was produced, uh, maybe a surface layer that was ripped apart from some bigger spacecraft, for example. But um, uh, at the same time, uh, after I wrote this, this paper, there were a few other suggestions made by uh, scientists that belong to the mainstream of astronomy, and all of them contemplated an object that we have never seen before. So they tried to explain it from a natural origin. And the suggestions were a hydrogen iceberg, chunk of frozen hydrogen, or a nitrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen nitrogen, or a collection of dust particles, like a dust cloud that is uh, very lightweight and being pushed by reflecting sunlight. And all of these suggestions have problems. First of all, they suggest something we've never seen. So, I mean, the same is true for an artificial origin, so we should not dismiss the artificial origin up front. But uh, moreover, each of them has a problem, like the dust cloud uh, will get uh, heated up by hundreds of degrees and will not maintain its integrity when it comes close to the sun if it's 100 times less dense than air, the way people contemplate it. And then the hydrogen iceberg will get evaporated very quickly. The nitrogen iceberg, it just doesn't work out in terms of the mass budget. You just don't have enough solid nitrogen in in planetary systems to account for Oumuamua. So when you have all these possibilities, I, I assign a higher likelihood to an artificial origin, but we are not sure. So how can we be sure? If we find another object, and we should find another object, you know, because when I go to the kitchen and I see an ant, I get alarmed. There must be many more ants out there. So there should be many more objects like Oumuamua, and we will find another one in a few years. Actually, in a few years, there would be a telescope called the Vera Rubin Observatory, much more sensitive than PANSTARS, and it could find an object every month. So if we get an alert for an object a year in advance, we can send a spacecraft equipped with a camera that will intercept its trajectory and then take a close-up photograph of that object. 
And, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a photograph. And uh, there is actually an example of such a photograph, you know, the Osiris, Osiris Rex uh, mission went in the direction of asteroid Bennu and uh, actually landed on it and took a very close-up photo. You can see that it's made of uh, rocks and it took even a sample that uh, will be brought back to, to Earth. So just imagine a mission like that uh, towards an artificial object. You know, if we land on it, not only we will have a beautiful photograph of what's going on there, but uh, we could even read the label made on planet X, you know, where it came from. Or we could import the technology back to Earth and maybe make a lot of money out of it. That will get more investment. <laughs> once there's a commercial, as you say, once the commercial is lined, there's all this motivation. I'm wondering how uh, your sense of wonder and curiosity, how that may align with a sense of spirituality, things you had, I mean, I don't know all the details of what you, the beliefs you were raised with or what you continue to believe to this day. Right. So when I look at the universe, you know, I don't take anything for granted. A lot of my colleagues take things uh, for granted. Uh, for example, you know, we find the laws of physics here on Earth through experiments. And then uh, we apply the same laws of physics and they seem to hold throughout the universe. That's amazing. You know, most scientists just say, OK, so what? But to me, it's quite remarkable because when, you know, when I see my daughter's room in the morning, it's a mess. It's a chaos, chaotic. Everything is out of place. And so why isn't the universe like that? You know, why isn't the universe like my daughter's room in the morning? It's very organized. It obeys the same laws. You know, here on Earth, we are trying to establish laws and a lot of people disobey the laws. So why is nature obeying a strict set of laws everywhere? That's remarkable. Also, nature is sometimes extremely beautiful. You know, I jog every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, during the pandemic, I developed this habit and I, I go in the company of uh, ducks, rabbits, uh, birds, and uh, wild turkeys. Uh, and um, every morning at 5 a.m., I see the sunrise and it looks different every day, you know. So nature is, is remarkable. And I developed this uh, deep connection to nature when I grew up on a farm. And I'm much more connected to nature than to people. I don't have any social media account, for example. Uh, my wife asked me not to have one when we got married, and I kept my word. And I, this way, I maintain my independence of mind. And I think creatively without being worried about how many likes I get on Twitter. That's really irrelevant, you know, because what matters is the evidence. You need to pay attention to nature. You know, science is a dialogue with nature. You have to listen to nature. A lot of people think of science as a monologue where they say what nature is supposed to be. The other thing about people is, you know, very often, uh, you know, they try to bring you to their point of view, irrespective of whether the evidence is there or not. You know, there is this uh, story about Socrates. Uh, he was a uh, uh, a very admirable uh, Greek philosopher, and he developed this method of dialogue with people and this, the Socratic uh, method of discussion, which is very much practiced by lawyers today. And uh, Socrates uh, was blamed by the society he lived in as a, a person that corrupts the youth because he was advising the youth to be independent in, in their thinking. 
and uh, he was put in jail and was asked to drink uh, poison. That was Socrates. Galileo was put in house arrest and because he, he tried to claim that uh, the, the earth moves around the sun. And there are many other examples. Uh, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake. And there are many such examples. Now, you ask yourself, um, what would happen to them if they live today? Maybe they would not be uh, forced to drink poison. They would not be burned on the stake. But they would be potentially canceled uh, by the Twitter mob. You know, they would immediately, I mean, instead of drinking poison, they would, uh, everything they say would, you know, people would just denounce it, ridicule it. And, and um, the moral of this story is that, you know, if you don't pay attention to Twitter, you don't drink the poison. And you can think independently and creatively and pay attention. You know, in, in basketball, uh, the coaches often say, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. What happens on social media is you keep your eyes on the audience rather than on the evidence. So in answer to your question, I admire nature. I'm at all with nature. And that's my sense of spirituality, that connection to nature rather than to people. Yes, it's very important. And it seems to me in some way aligned to a kind of, whether it's a spirituality, I don't know, we all have, but there's a sense of faith or a curiosity about the unknown and maybe belief that we can define it, we can discover it to greater detail. And also going back to that, what you're saying about the audience, it makes me think as well, there's so many things that we haven't seen or confirmed, but it's the instruments of measure, isn't it? We are limited by instruments of measure and that we're not completely logical beings as well. We're emotional beings that affects us as well. And I can't remember because I just recently did an interview with the founder of PETA. We were, so we were talking a lot about animals and I forget there's this fish. Is it a catfish? I can't remember, but it, this communication system that they have where one side of their body can communicate with a color, something to say a predator or whatever, and, or maybe make themselves not seen and the other part of their body can communicate something else to their friends and I feel like like we're, when we're observing these distant things in the cosmos we are only seeing what we can see what we can read but there's this this other part we may be programmed or we don't have that ability to measure well you see I, I make the analogy uh, with an actor uh, we are born into the world like uh, an actor that is put on a stage and um, without a script, nobody tells us what the play is about. Now, what most people think is the play is about them. And they're, you know, center stage, and it's all about them. And, you know, that's also what Aristotle, Aristotle argued, you know, that we are at the center of the play. The truth of the matter, you know, after studying astronomy, I can tell you with confidence that First of all, the stage is much bigger than the earth, you know, much bigger than your home and, and your home is much smaller than the earth and the earth is tiny relative to the size of the universe, you know. So we're talking the size of the universe is 10 to the power 26 bigger than the size of your body. You know, it's huge. So that's the size of the stage as far as we can see. So first of all, we are not at the center of that stage. The stage is huge. Secondly, we arrived relatively late. You know, we live at best for 100 years. The universe exists for 100 million times longer already, 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. 
So that means that we are witnessing a very tiny bit of the entire play. You know, there was a lot going on before we arrived to the stage. So we cannot be, we cannot play a central role if we are arriving for a tiny bit of the play. You know, with that, the play is not about us. And uh, my point is, we should be modest and try to figure out what the play is about. And one way to figure out is to look if there are other actors around. You know, that's finding evidence for other civilizations. And if we find any, we can ask them what the play is about. Maybe they know. But what the biggest mistake we can make is that to think that we are at the center of the stage and everything is about us. And that's what most people do. That I find that really surprising. Speaking to Avi during this interview, it's so clear that he is very wise, not just in science, but in areas of philosophy, writing, and generating ideas. Both during the interview and also while reading his latest book, Extraterrestrial, I was captivated by his worldview and unique take on things. He has this way of breaking down big, intimidating scientific concepts into bite-sized analogies that even I, a person with minimal knowledge of space, can fully understand and digest. I loved learning more about his process investigating Oumuamua, the first known interstellar object detected passing through the solar system, and I really do believe that through his books, essays, and interviews, he's making science more accessible for everyone. Something that particularly stuck out to me was Avi's urging for scientists to be more humble and to let a childlike curiosity drive their process. I don't know what I was expecting from the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, but it certainly wasn't that piece of advice. But the more I think about it, it's true. Keeping knowledge locked up in some ivory tower within an echo chamber of similar voices can most certainly hinder progress in any field. Avi's encouragement to young people to think for themselves and discover their own unique creative process is certainly encouraging and comforting to me as a film major. It's up to us to learn more about the stage we stand on and keep an open mind and heart to all possibilities that come our way. Of course, if you confine your vision to a very narrow uh, environment around yourself, then you could feel that way. But, you know, you can decide, for example, that you want to live your life at home, close off the windows, and not read the newspaper. You don't care about what happens elsewhere, and you will get your food through the front door, and that's it. But guess what? What happens in Wuhan, China, will get to your front door. And if you don't know about it, you won't be careful, and it will affect you. And, you know, there were... uh, dinosaurs that used to roam the earth, you know, they were dominant, they they had huge bodies, they were very arrogant, they felt very proud of themselves because they were stronger than all the animals around them, and they were happy eating grass, and then one day, 66 million years ago, there was a giant rock the size of Manhattan Island that came from the sky and killed them, and killed the three quarters of all the life forms on earth. This is the Chicxulub impactor. And um, what is the lesson to be learned? You know, now we have much smaller bodies than the dinosaurs, but we have the human brain that allows us to build telescopes that can warn us about an incoming object so we can deflect it and we will not share the fate of the dinosaurs. So it's really important for us to look at the bigger environment, to look for risks, for dangers that may come our way, 
because knowledge is always good. You know, knowing if we are alone, for example, is always good. It will help us plan for the future in a better way. And it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up the coronavirus because I think it's something we've reflected a lot on in these times. And that's an intelligent design. I, and I'm thinking about life on other planets. And I think about how viruses just adapt and evolve so quickly. And, you know, what is that the nature of life on other planets? What, is it more vi- virus-like? And as you say, the smallness makes us adaptable, makes us able to, you know, work collectively and improve. Yeah, it's possible that um, the most um, abundant forms of life are are much more primitive than we are because they can survive and adapt, as you said. You know, it's possible that there are lots of crocodiles on, on other planets, much more so than uh, technological civilizations, because crocodiles can live uh, under more harsh conditions or microbes or viruses or whatever, you know. And we, we just don't know. And uh, the best thing to do under these circumstances is to explore, not, not to assume anything. Uh, a lot of people have an opinion. You know, they they say, I think this, I think... That's a monologue. That's not a dialogue. What you need to do is listen. The other point is, you know, when you, when you walk in the wilderness, when you go into nature, the smartest thing to do is to be quiet and listen rather than uh, speak out and be loud because you never know whether there are predators out there. And, um, you know, we have been... <laughs> quite loud over the past century because we sent out radio signals, you know, into space without worrying about anything. And and over a century, these radio signals propagated a distance of 100 light years. So if there is any civilization within that distance that has radio telescopes, they already know about us. And, you know, it could take them a million years to reach us with the chemical rockets, but uh, we might hear from them. Absolutely. I think what you're saying in the book and here about humility coming from uncertainty is a really applicable principle to like everything in life. And I also think it's super cool how you sort of had the idea to eavesdrop on other planets and their radiation just to listen and see if you could find anything out. But going back real quick to something you said about like social media and science, sort of that intersection really interests me because I think staying outside of social media could totally have the effect of like being creatively independent and staying outside of the echo chamber of all these people's thoughts. But I mean, at the same time, maybe it's just because I'm a child of the internet and I'm biased. I feel like it could be like a really nice place to disseminate information. And I've learned so many things over social media as well. And I also feel like it's a shame you feel that way because you could probably go viral on TikTok. Um, (laughs) By the way, I agree with you that uh, there is a lot of information you can get, but then it comes uh, with a baggage in the sense that there is a lot of groupthink also on social media. So I don't know, maybe it's possible to design an instrument on the internet that will convey information, but not, but not sort of, you know, have, have this uh, strong groupthink uh, background, you know. People that are positive, uh, positively inclined to being open-minded and encouraging to each other. So it will not be a toxic environment. You know, right now, at, at least on Twitter, there is a lot of, uh, you know, negative content about people and, and that gets a lot of traction. And if it was all positive about cooperation and helping each and encouraging each other and, and providing information, that would have been fantastic. I completely agree with you. But how do we get that without the other part? 
I suppose it's a double-edged sword. What happens, what I discovered is I've had very little negativity on, I had, I was very slow to come to it. In fact, I was really, I wouldn't, um, induced to join by the Sobon. Uh, but during my time there, because we had to share projects, I just received a lot of positive feedback because it becomes a mirror of what you put there. <laughs> so fortunately, I did it. I knew not to get my news there. I knew that immediately. <laughs> I, was, I was cautious from the beginning. So I, I had avoided that. But there will be this mirroring aspect so that even if it's positive, you'll be, you could receive you know, false positive feedback from people. But it, yeah. it is interesting how one curates one's experience. But, but Hannah is correct that um, it serves also a very important purpose of communicating and connecting people that are otherwise would not be connected as, as well. And, and sharing information, yeah, I, I do agree with her on that. But um, anyway, I promised my wife not to have an account, so I, didn't, I don't have any, but maybe at some point uh, she will allow me and then try it out. I think that the way you do it is very good because you have a lot of imagination, curiosity and diligence and it can be distracting, I think. I should say, aside from my book, um, every week or so I, I publish an essay in Scientific American. So if anyone is interested to see what the latest is, and that usually describes interesting advances in my science or in astrophysics more generally, almost every week or two. Yes, they're really, you know, interesting questions about cosmic responsibility. They're, you know, how much time does humanity have left? And really important questions. Uh, when did life first emerge in the universe? And these are just some recent ones that people will hopefully explore. You know, what of those recent articles have you really captivated your imagination or you're not quite finished with yet because there's oh, no. I mean uh, every day I have like for example today I'm finishing another essay by the way all of them can be found on my website uh, at Harvard University if you just google my name and go to my professional website that lists all my publications not the university website that just has my name on it but the actual professional website you can find all of my writings in real time and uh, the one thing, you know, every day is a new beginning for me. I, I come up with new creative ideas. And uh, I tell myself that if I wake up, I will wake up one morning in the future with no idea in my head. What will I do? I mean, that will be quite depressing. Maybe I will go into politics or into administration at that point. But so far, I, these ideas bubble up. You know, it's not up to me. They come up um, and that's what nature blessed me with. And, you know, when I was young, my mentor asked me, what computer skills do you have? And I said, I don't use the computer much. Um, it's mostly about ideas and, and working out those ideas. And, and he was stunned. And that was like about 30 years ago. And I'm still quite um, active. And so I'm very happy to, to have been given the opportunity to pursue uh, this line of work. And, you know, when I was young, I used to see business people that I was at Princeton as a postdoc and uh, at the train station, you would see them all wearing the same type of suit about to go on the train. They look like penguins, uh, all of them alike. And uh, they have similar lifestyles. They go on the train, they go into the office, they, uh, you know, speak a little differently with uh, each other about different topics, but they come back home at the same time. They have similar houses they live in. I just cannot live such a life. You know, I cannot, I cannot have a lifestyle that is identical, like 
being tailored in advance like everyone else. I have to, to think independently. You know, there, in my book, there is this um, story when on the first day of class, I entered the classroom and and that was at age seven. And I looked at all the kids and they were jumping up and down on the chairs. And I was looking at them and thinking, does it make any sense to jump up and down? And the teacher came in and she looked at everyone and, and looked at me and said, why is everyone uh, jumping here? Uh, look at Avi, he's so well behaved. And I wanted to correct her that I, I was not well behaved. I was just thinking whether it makes sense to jump up and down. That's all. So it took me some time to decide if I want to jump as well or not. It was just this delay that she thought uh, she misinterpreted as a, a good behavior on my part. So did you sometimes, I see you're always observing people around, you're thinking, are they really logical or what? Or did you sometimes feel like an alien on your own planet? <laughs> well, that's what my wife says. Um, she says, you know, if they ever come back to get you uh, and their spaceship uh, lands in our backyard, I want you to do two things. One, make sure that you leave the car keys with me. And the second, make sure that you tell them not to ruin the loan when they lift off. So she's not uh, worried at all that they will take me. <laughs> she's, that's, that's generous of her. <laughs> she's had her time. <laughs> no, she wants you to c come back. You know, I asked my students in my class, I said, uh, suppose a, a spacecraft came over and you were asked to board. Would you do it? And all of them said yes with one ex uh, caveat. And I was surprised by the caveat. They said, as long as they can, you know, maintain their social media connection and send, you know, share their experience with their friends. That was the condition that they would like to show their, their friends photographs with the aliens. And only under this condition, they'll go. Uh, I found that surprising because, you know, if I were to go to the Himalayas and climb a, a tall mountain, you know, just for the challenge of it, I would climb the tallest mountain, I wouldn't care less about other people. I would just do it for the challenge. I would enjoy the, the beautiful scenery on these mountains. I wouldn't have any urge to share it with anyone. But it sounds like the young people today have an urge. Whenever they experience something unusual, they must communicate it. So that was the condition. Then I'll ask, I asked my students, would they, if they were asked to board a ship that will go into a black hole, would they do it? And all of them said no, because you cannot escape from a black hole. You cannot come back. That was a wise uh, decision. I, I, I would agree with them on that. So in terms of your, if, they, if someone to come through you or you had the opportunity to voyage to any planet or any place beyond Earth, maybe there's an itinerary, that your, your list of places to visit. Yeah, so I would be very interested in, in passing near a black hole because it's really an unusual environment and you know the image must be amazing around it and there are lots of places in the milky way galaxy that i would like to visit you know there are lots of unusual objects neutron stars white dwarfs black holes the, the center of the galaxy it has a giant black hole near the center all kinds of places like that and i should say that one of my scientific american essays perhaps the re the most recent one was about stars moving um, through space close to the speed of light. These are stars that are ejected from the centers of galaxies when two black holes kick them out like a pinball machine. You know, the, 
Sometimes you get stars kicked out of the centers of galaxies close to the speed of light. So if you imagine being on a planet, just like the Earth, around a star like the Sun that was kicked out close to the speed of light, then by such a slingshot of two black holes, then it would be the most amazing journey that one can imagine because you will start at the center of the galaxy and then go through the entire galaxy and uh, see all kinds of things. And, you know, I would be really excited to go into space and, and visit places. It would be, I don't care if it's a one-way trip, you know, because we live through life as a one-way trip. And um, uh, why not have make it exciting? You know, I would be very excited about that. You can ask, why don't we see aliens visiting us? And frankly, I think it's, well, there are several reasons. We are not that interesting to them. You know, we are not, only in the last hundred years, we develop technologies and so forth. Also, you know, most of the stars are much smaller than the sun, so they emit infrared radiation. And th these animals have uh, infrared eyes. So I asked students in my class if they know of any animal on Earth that has infrared eyes. And one of them, uh, she found uh, an image of a shrimp that has uh, infrared eyes. It's, it looks like two ping pong balls connected with cords to the head of the shrimp. And the shrimp looked like a, an alien to me. But you, then you think, okay, will interstellar tourist agencies, will they advertise the Earth? Probably not, because our tourist vacation sites, uh, you know, they, they are illuminated by visible light, which hurts the eyes of the, those infrared creatures. And uh, moreover, you know, we have... Um, uh, green grass to offer them and they're used to dark red grass on their home planet. So they would never come to visit us. I feel like, you know, when extraterrestrial travel is available, you would obviously definitely be one of the first people to go on it. But I wanted to go back really quickly to something you mentioned earlier about like the creative process of generating ideas in science. It's really interesting to me because the things you mentioned, like independent thinking or observing people or, you know, the bubbling up of ideas reminded me a lot of just like creative arts. I'm a film major. So it's sort of very similar. And that was really fascinating to me. It's very similar. I completely agree. You know, doing art and doing innovative science are, are similar in the sense that, you know, you can't really trace where the idea comes from. But in order to get good ideas, you have to be engaged and immersed in the issues and, and, and really care about it. And, you know, it's, it's sort of part of your life and you can't separate your work from your life because it can come anytime. And yeah, so I completely agree with you. And, you know, now that I wrote a book, uh, you know, and I'm writing, uh, I'm planning also an another book and I, I know a lot about, you know, how to craft language and, you know, also in the, in the essays that I'm and, you know, it does, it, it does resemble creative work in anything uh, is the same, you know, it, it, whether it's science or whether it's uh, painting or whether it's making films. In all cases, I mean, the difference is the material that you work with, the, the, the tools that you use to express yourself. But, but beyond that, you know, the, there is the idea of what to do and, and the way it comes to you is sort of magic. You know, it feels really special when you go through, it's giving birth to, to a concept or an idea that was not around, you know, is, is the same as giving birth to a human in a way, because although I'm a man, you know, I've never given birth, but I can imagine because I saw my wife giving birth, but it's, it, it's something really special, you know, something comes out of you and then it's sort of independent. 
uh, and other people look at it and see different things by interacting with it. But you know that it wouldn't be there. You know, if you wouldn't create it, it would not be there. So it's very different from things that you just go to the supermarket and purchase. You know, those things that you pay for, those things existed before you went to the supermarket. You just decided, I want this from that aisle and I want that from another aisle. And a lot of times in life, that's what you do, you know, even when you choose a person that to live with, you know, like a partner, that's, that partner existed before you came, right? So, I mean, of course you can change the partner by interacting with the partner, but, but um, it's different when something comes out of you, okay? It's, it's different than going to the shelf on the supermarket and picking it up and paying for it. And because you know that it's a special feeling that something came out of you and it, in a way it represents you, but it also has some independent life after, after you made it. It's so interesting to think about the question of creativity, uh, unique creative expression. There are other creative expressions that sometimes where we're building too, maybe too much on what others has gone before, but when it's really, what you say, it comes from you. And the question about what is genius, and I, I just want to link that back because it's something about what you said about childhood. And I feel, and I can't speak about the sciences. I know that they are linked, but I don't have that full understanding. But I feel like if something is if when you can unlock something that is innate to you, it is not, it's just something it was, and then it seems so original because it's not been clouded by everything else you've been told. It's kind of coming back to the childlike. This is kind of my vague idea of what is it, a genius, like exposing something that was always there. And we never saw it before. Yeah, that's what, in a sense, it appeals to a lot of people afterwards because it has some truth to it. And yeah, and, and it looks sort of obvious after the fact. So that, as you say, yeah. But the one thing I wanted also to mention is when you go to the beach, uh, you see seashells and, you know, seashells, you see seashells and you see sand. Okay. And what is the sand on the beach? You know, it's just seashells that uh, rubbed against each other because of the waves that are uh, sweeping them. And uh, as they rub against each other, they, even though initially they look very different from each other, each, each uh, seashell has different colors, different shape. Once they rub against each other, you know, they start to become indistinguishable and, and they break into small pieces and, and then you end up with grains of sand that are indistinguishable. And, you know, humans are just like that. Um, if you let them uh, rub against each other, that's what happens on social media. When people interact a lot, it's just like the seashells rubbing against each other and they become indistinguishable. You lose your special color. You lose your special shape. And the only way to maintain that is not to rub <laughs> against everyone else and just to maintain your special qualities and you know if if you are an artist or if you are an innovator that's exactly what you're doing you're trying to keep the special qualities that you have and, and express them through your work it's an interesting question because it comes to we're thinking a lot now about our systems i think there's something we know we've just recently had it's been earth month and we're thinking about the future and how it's at some point, maybe we have to act collectively in order to ensure our future and whether that is a sacrifice of our individuality and to some extent. And I don't know, it's 
It is a toss-up. I know we have to work together because we're not going to make it through without. Sure, sure. I mean, science is a very good example because co- uh, in science, cooperation and sharing of knowledge is essential. And, uh, you know, for example, if we knew everything about the virus early on, we would develop uh, the vaccine earlier and everyone would have benefited. And so the way I describe science uh, in, in difference from economics, for example, in economics, you have um, a zero-sum game in the sense that if someone benefits, someone else loses. It's called zero-sum game. Uh, if uh, The sum is zero where, you know, some people may have a positive surplus and the others a negative uh, a loss. And so in, in science, it's not like that. In science, I call it an infinite-sum game where if you gain some knowledge, everyone else benefits from it. So by generating knowledge... It's for the benefit of everyone, and you can go up to infinity. The sum can be infinite. And that's uh, the most important aspect of science is cooperation towards a better future. And I think that's extremely important for society in general. You know, we are very often engaged in uh, competition between nations, in competition between people. You know, we try to demonstrate that we are superior relative to other people. Uh, You know, racism stems from that. And... All of this makes no sense whatsoever, especially given the universe at large. You know, all these differences are really minor and completely irrelevant and unimportant. But, but uh, also it doesn't make sense in, in terms of, you know, we should aspire to have a better future by working together, by cooperating. And so I completely agree with you. Now, sometimes this cooperation implies that you dedicate a part of yourself uh, for the benefit of the public. And that's called service, and it's really important. And you know, because you are serving a bigger goal than yourself, so you can do you can serve a bigger goal either by participating in in social missions, you know, trying to help society, or by contributing art or science to society. You know, if you are doing creative work as part of science or as part of art, you are providing content for other people that that enjoy it and. That's also extremely important because it's not just, you know, life is not just about having enough food and and, and that's it. It's also about, you know, being inspired and and thinking about why do we live? What is the meaning of life? You know, otherwise it looks like a Sisyphean effort for, you know, no good purpose. You know, you need to have some inspiration in life and arts and science provide that inspiration. I guess just going back to like a little bit about film, because that's, what I know the most about. It's very interesting that in science you collaborate with all these people and it works towards like a bigger end goal and serves a bigger purpose. And I feel like that happens in film too. But then if there's too much grains of sand rubbing against each other, then everything starts to sound the same. I know there's no shortage of like alien, crazy sci-fi movies that sort of all are copies of one another. So what do you feel about media like that that portrays the existence of extraterrestrials as sort of like outlandish or improbable or just blend it with fiction. How do you feel about that? Oh, no, I think, well, science fiction uh, is, it plays a very important role of expanding our imagination. I personally have a, a, an issue with storylines that violate the laws of physics because I cannot enjoy them. But there are storylines that are, you know, quite authentic and and, um, do not violate the laws of physics. I mean, my favorite film is, for example, Arrival. And um, it was my favorite 
film for a few years and I, I even gave a lecture at the movie theater before a screening of the film and and last week by chance you know that there were about 25 filmmakers that approached me and, and film producers that approached me after uh, seeing extraterrestrial with interest in the content and one of them uh, that I spoke ended up uh, being the producer of arrival and he was very excited about extraterrestrial and I, I enjoyed speaking with him. To me, it was a great privilege. And so that's an example in, in that film. What you have is the question of linguistics, how to communicate with an alien civilization, which is very challenging. You know, it's not just a question of understanding the language of another culture. It's also the means by which the language is communicated. You know, the we use uh, sound waves to communicate, but in that uh, film, it's uh, ink imprints and so, some special thing. So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting and challenging problem of um, how to communicate with someone that you had no contact with before. And so that's an example for a film that is very inspiring. And, you know, I do think that it serves an important pr purpose of, uh, you know, bringing up a, an important philosophical question of communication and in the context of sci-fi. Yes, and that was a very unique film as in terms of the context of many sci-fi films that I've seen, is that it's bringing in linguistics, which it hadn't been addressed, I think, usually. And so it's even almost the humanities as well. And what, those questions are always so fascinating because how does how does our perception influence the, what we are perceiving? How does language influence the chemistry in our, our mind and how it organizes things? Uh, I think we will never really know entirely, uh, but you have given us, so we're looking forward to that. I don't know when, when is that slated, the extraterrestrial uh, film, or, or is it, how is it being adapted? I mean, we are currently um, in negotiations with various people. We will see how things develop, but I'm excited this will be a different medium for me. But uh, in answer to Hannah's uh, question, uh, the answer is definitely yes. It, uh, this, this medium is extremely important. And just like uh, books, you know, it, it, it conveys. In fact, films are the medium that I love the most. You know, I, before the pandemic, I used to watch two films every week. And um, I really admire the visual arts uh, because they convey much more information than the written word. You can, just from one image, you can learn so much. And then it, it's nice again how music can then come in and support it and all these. Um, we've been blessed to have many conversations with filmmakers and the different people involved in that process. So, so I always love learning about that. But it's, I'm sad too because the last film I saw in the cinema, actually it was uh, documentaries about Yiddish culture. And then I wasn't able to go back into the cinema again. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, Yiddish is a mix of uh, Hebrew that I speak and uh, German that I don't speak. Uh, my father came from Germany and I tell the story in my book. But it's a very rich language because it's a combination of two languages. So perhaps if we could combine all languages in the world, we'll get the richest the culture, you know, the richest literature. Well, it's it's a, it's a mystery. And I so I want to uh, thank you uh, for all this understanding that you have given us this opening our minds to possibilities and also the courage to, you know, possibilities with also saying it could you could be wrong this is something that we have to open ourselves to it's an important example thank you so much and uh, my message to the young people is stay young in your spirit never um, never surrender to 
adulthood to people telling you not to think some way. That's a message we all have to learn. And so thank you, Avi Loeb, for bringing us behind the curtain of astrophysics and cosmology, embracing life's mysteries, your courage and constant pursuit of knowledge and wonder about how the universe works, that we might expand our understanding. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Hannah So with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Hannah So. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>